Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Pepper Potts Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I like that nickname. Yeah. It fits. It does. Reason. You're a, you're a sexy, sexy I don't know, I assistant. Say, yeah, I was sexy, say pretty, definitely. but I'll take sexy. Pretty. Yeah, sure. Pretty sexy. Pretty sexy. Sure. That's fine. <laughs> how's uh How's everything going in your life? How's uh How's I don't know. How's tricks in Pennsylvania? Let's say that. everything's okay. Yeah. You know what? I'm obsessed. I don't think I got to, a chance to talk to you about this. I've been obsessed since the advent of the 2021 Olympics finally kicking off. That. I'm sort of dwelling on the notion still and sort of settling with the reality of skateboarding in the Olympics. It's really been on my mind a lot. And I feel kind of bad about it because I have to be honest with you. A lot of you out there aren't going to like it. Kind of a little bit of a hater on skateboarding in the Olympics. I don't know that I'm all for it. And I'm trying to sort of right myself with the whole thing because one thing I like about it, Kyle, is that it gives professional skateboarders an international forum for recognition, for their blood, sweat, and tears. Skateboarding is a hard thing, right? It's not easy. And it actually occurs to me like anyone could go out there and swing a baseball bat. They may or may not be successful at it or ride a bike. But there's a lot of people that won't even stand on a skateboard. We've talked about that before sure. on the podcast. Like it, it terrifies them. Skateboarding is a hard thing. It takes a lot. It takes years of dedication, blood, sweat, and tears, injuries, blah, blah, blah. So I'm glad that the skaters have an international forum for recognition. They could be on television for the viewing public, the average Joe, civilians, whatever, and get that sort of love. Civ- that civvies. Feel, you know. <laughs> but the downside is there's a, there's a few downsides for me, but one is like a little resentfulness. You know, it was a subculture. It wasn't really accepted. I started in the 80s. It was sort of an undergroundish thing. I think we derived a lot of enjoyment out of that. Like, not everybody being in the know. Like, I remember going to the store with mom and dad when I was a kid in junior high. And, like, you would recognize the other skateboarders. And it was few and far between. Like, it was even crazy to see another kid that skated. Maybe they had duct tape on their shoe. Or they were just rocking, like, a skate t-shirt, which weren't available in every box conceivable box store at that time that whole thing and i'm i was thinking about this you may remember this now philadelphia the city of philadelphia has had historically very adversarial relationship with skateboarding right in general they're storied for that and in 2000 oddly enough philadelphia became the venue for the 2000 x games the x games are going to be held in philadelphia it was a big thing they set up a big course at City Hall. It was like this whole, whatever, three or four day event to the tune of the city bringing in millions of dollars vis-a-vis the X Games, right? And it was like, I think we saw it as like, wow, this is going to be like the salve between skateboarders in Philadelphia. Like there's finally going to be some healing. There's going to be some understanding. Maybe it won't be illegal to skateboard on the street. And as soon as they got the money in their coffers, right? And the X Games left town. Boom. It was illegal again, and they were cracking down just as hard as before the X Games were out. So I think there's a little bit, probably for my generation, there's a little bit of that holdover angst and sort of uh, bad feelings, you know, 
when, where it comes to like historically the relationship between skateboarding and culture, you know, and it's changing now. And also where does, I don't know if you've got a chance to watch any of it. I haven't watched that much of it, to be honest with you <laughs> after all this hot air, but <laughs> where does style come into the whole equation? You know, it's tricks, it's difficulty trying to top your opponent on the handrail or on the set of stairs or whatever, but skateboarding is also a lot, you know, largely due to style. You know, it's a difficult thing to judge. It's not like shooting hoops or kicking a ball in a net. You know, it's something. So, you know, I've had a really, I'm trying to, and most skaters my age, I think because skateboarding has changed, it's become so much more positive, a little more inclusive, a little less snobby than it used to be historically in the 80s and 90s. Like a lot of skaters my age are like, down for it you know like they're they're psyched for it pro or not you know whether they're dialed into the industry or not but yeah i'm having a i'm having a bad time with it because i'm usually not a negative you know a negative nancy but this type of thing and i still know i i just i, I don't like it <laughs> that's i kind of understand that and i tried to play this out in my own mind when i was seeing you tweet about it a little bit at first i was like oh i don't mind i think that's kind of cool and then and then when I thought about it more, I, I came to a, a different conclusion, which was, well, this seems antithetical to what skateboarding is. Like, the, this is the ultimate, like, hammer throw and shit. Like, this is the ultimate acceptance of some sort of historic precedent for a sporting event. And having some sort of amorphous skill, like figure skating and all of that snowboarding yeah, was included, I think. so. a huge conversation. It's, it, th so then I started vacillating back towards... Well, it's actually not that different. It's funny you brought it up. I was like, the X Games kind of broke this ground already. I understand it's not the Olympics, but everyone was down with the X Games, and the X Games was the way that people competed, and and it, at least when I was younger, was kind of the accepted way that you saw right head to head any sort of head to head competition between people, and you know, outside of skateboarding as well, BMX, which I was into when I was younger, and even the aggressive inline, which I've. I've been kind of mystified about the, the disappearance of inline skating. It's very strange. Like, I, because that seemed to be the one where I was like, this should be the, the one that takes off the most because it's, it's expensive, but it seems like it's the easiest to wrap your mind around. Like everyone roller skates or rollerblades or ice sure. skates at some point in their life. So, yeah. And so it was, was embraced a of, by people largely. Yeah, for exactly. And so I, I was never into that scene, but I was always like, where did these dudes go? Yeah. Uh, but so, so I'm, I'm in, I'm of the mind where, I hear you, but I also feel like this ground has been broken and skating is a long way from, you know, skateboarding is a crime sort of stuff. Sure. sure. And well I feel said. like I feel like that kind of sucks. I understand that. I think everyone feels that way about being there first about anything. Yeah. I know that people like are like, that's gatekeeping and stuff. But to me, it kind of I get is. it. I know I, I, it is gatekeeping. It is. Actually, I, there is an argument that gatekeeping is even good for certain fandoms and passions and stuff where it's like you don't want people in here that are gonna you know make D, &D change easier to understand or right. remove dice from very well said. this or you know what i mean like absolutely so you don't you don't want it to be too accessible you want people to put in the work and the time whoever they are but i think skateboarding is almost 25 years probably past that i mean yeah. think about tony think about the x games and i think there were two things in the 90s the, the x games and tony hawk's pro skater i think both yes. of those things that was basically absolutely Tony Hawk as a just as an entity too. Yeah, I know that possessiveness. And I also have to say one thing for the pros besides the accolades 
and the acknowledgement, the fact that they get to have a purse, you know, they get to make some money off of it too, which, you know, historically only the top pros are making tens and tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's very hard to make a living as a pro generally, unless you were top, top dude or dudette. So that's another thing. That's another plus, but I think that's true. I think once snowboarding got in, it was going to be only a matter of time. It was going to be an inevitability. And snowboarding could not have possibly stayed out of the Olympics. There was no way that you could keep snowboarding out of the Olympics. If you really think about it, you couldn't. You know what I mean? You have the whole sort of competition with skiing and that whole thing of snowboarding becoming part of really kind of a mainstream sport. So that was going to, besides the other board sports like surfing, that was going to usher in skateboarding into like the public purview, I think. And including the Olympics. So it is interesting to see it change. And it would be really interesting if one of my kids skateboarded, you know, actively and, and were really into the hobby to kind of see how it would look now. Because I guess you could just have it both ways. You could have it either way. You could do you could be a little more athletic or treat it like a more of a jock, quote unquote jock thing, or keep it on that subculture level. I guess it's kind of up to the it's up to the skateboarder. It's up to the individual. I didn't realize, too, and I'm, I'm just looking at it now because I was like, well, who's going to dominate this? Is it going to be ours? Japan is Kids murdering. They, they all, they've won gold in every event yeah, so far. Absolutely. Which, you know, which which is really odd because skateboarding, especially in the big downtown areas like Tokyo, it's a night sport there. You can't even do it during the day. It's like not only because of how crowded the cities are especially places like Tokyo, but also because it's just frowned upon, you know, in society, like you have to do it under the, under the cover of night there, which is really, you know, that's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how skateboarding changes in Asian countries. Cause it's really popped off obviously in Canada, Australia, and all the European countries for years, but it's going to be interesting to see how skateboarding changes in China and Japan, you know, Singapore, all the Asian, all the Asian countries. It's going to be. I think it's going to be a point of departure for that. It's going to be. There's going to be big changes, a sea change. I think. Well, we'll see. I am sympathetic to you, just in the sense that I know I, there are things I love that you you never really want to see. It's like the conundrum. You want everyone to love it, but you don't want everyone to love it. And yeah, and it and it is gatekeeping, and it is snobbish. So that's the thing that doesn't gatekeeping sit is right. snobbish. You it is I mean? snobbish. It's a little but, snotty. No, but I but that's part of it. I, I think, you know, what's fun about the Olympics? And I was saying this to Micah, although I have not watched almost any of it. So, you know, I'm full of shit in this way <laughs> as well. I've just been busy, I guess. But me too. Keeping up, keeping up with the medal count and making sure, you know, we're, we're pulling our weight in that way. But I was opining I, I, in a positive way. I love the Olympics because it's just outrageous. The amount of sport that goes on in the world and. I don't know that I'm introduced to much anymore in my in my older age, but I'm reminded of I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a thing where you run through the snow and then you like shoot a gun and then you know, this guy or you get into a sled and just shoot down an ice tube or <laughs> you, know, you know, what's a great game in the Summer Olympics that I really love is water polo. That's a fucking game. I was dude. watching I that, the other that night game with great. What a game. What a game. I never knew much about it before that. I didn't know what it was at first, actually. Can you imagine the strength that's no. required for that? No. It's insane. Just never touching the ground and 
the underwater shots are really crazy, like watching them all churn, but also like the, the dirty shit that goes on underneath. Like they grab each other and like punch each other. And it's pretty fascinating. I, this, yeah. It's funny that you say that because, yeah, when it first came on, Graven was like, what is this? And I was like, you know, it took me a minute. I was like, oh, it's water polo. <laughs> and it is. It's really interesting. And I don't know that I had ever sat down to watch it before, to be honest. So it was new to me. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. There are certain sports like that where I, I guess I don't know that it, like where, why isn't this like a huge sport, but there are certain sports, lacrosse being one of them, although I think we have a Long Island bias towards that and yeah, certain like water polo and others where I'm like, how is this not bigger than it is? I, I'm not saying it, sh- it should be a top four sport in the United States or anything, but you see things like soccer always working on the periphery and I see a sport like lacrosse and I'm like, lacrosse is way cooler than soccer. I would much rather lacrosse. Why isn't lacrosse a big sport? Yeah. So lacrosse is so interesting because it dates back to the Native Americans, right? Yeah. Yeah. So had to be around a while. (laughs) Definitely. So it's just an example of being reminded of all of this sport. And it's cool. Even even things that are fun to make fun of, but quite challenging. Speed walking is always one that's fun to make fun of. But it's like, but it's crazy. These dudes like calves and thighs and. I don't know. It's it, it, it's very fun. And Micah was making made me hysterical because she's like, she's like, what if everyone what if the Olympics was like you get a random people, random people get random letters in the mail and it's like you are have been chosen by the Olympic Committee. <laughs> you will be competing in beach volleyball or something. And that's like the entire thing. And the Olympics is just about random people from every country in the world playing random games against That's each other. And just see now, what, do you get the train? Is there a training period involved? Maybe, just... there, maybe there would be. And okay. she was saying like, maybe you would be advantageous. Maybe you get drafted for cross country or you're like for baseball or something. And it's like, okay, okay, I can probably hang here. Right. But maybe you are like a 400 pound man and you are drafted for service as a 400 meter swimmer. It's a really something good like idea, that. actually. Yeah. And it's just totally randomized. In every country in the world, civilian, and then, and then we all go compete. I, yeah. th- I think there's a there's you could keep the current Olympics model, but also do this thing. Why not? Yeah, in off years because we go. have the uh, we have the even years for the Olympics. Exactly, it's every two years, and then every other year, every two years on the odd years, we can fill in rando winter Olympics and rando summer Olympics, and it could be fall and spring. Fall and spring. So we have the fall, so the have fall Olympics of... and the spring Olympics. That's an excellent. There we Love go. It. Love that. And it's like field day, but it's like field day, but for everyone. (laughs) That'd be awesome. It's like a hunger. It's like a hunger games with no stakes. Dude, I love this. Yeah. It's all Micah. I think. Yeah. I think think that's a great brainchild, man. I love it. Yeah. But you're right. There's something to everything. There's speed walking, curling, right? There's something to everything. There's more to it than you that meets the eye initially. You know, you have to give everything a kind of a tip of the cap. And when you take time to understand it, like water polo right there's like wow there is something to this something to be admired there which is kind of uh i think that's the that's a that's the bright spot one of the bright spots of the olympics it's cool too because in water polo they play in those like mega deep diving pools yeah so like there's no touching anything no even if you like go down and you just like i want to like want to rest at eight feet and then bounce back up <laughs> no that won't be happening you're gonna drown <laughs> that is fascinating treading yeah. water for that long right they should enhance water polo by putting some sort of like pulling fan underneath the water. If you go below like eight or 10 feet, it starts to drag you like fizzy lifting drink would drag you up. It would that, start. It would drag you down. That's you know, that's And you'd have to kind of swim against the current. And then you'd eventually. 
That's right. horrifying. I like it. Yeah, definitely. Some Navy SEAL shit. Up the ante. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the topic at hand here, Dig. It's uh, Iron Man, the 2008 film, the very first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think I put this in the pot, although you might have. No, I, I think feel you like did. this. I feel like this movie is necessary to get into finally. I think we've Definitely. waited long enough. And as people know, or longtime fans of me know, I have not seen any MCU movie except for Iron Man. So although we have to start here, I've already seen this movie. So it's kind of anticlimactic from that point of view, but it gets us back on this trajectory where I don't even know. I mean, I'm going to click on Marvel Cinematic Universe here on the internet. Oh, yeah. And I don't even know, like, what's next? Let's see. I don't even know what's after Iron Man. Iron Man, First Avenger, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, The Incredible Hulk. Yep. A funny. So it's this all sounds so boring for but a while. You got to go back. Do it anyway. You got to go back to 98 with Hulk, Blade, the Blade movies. We did Spidey in 2000. But is that does that count? I don't know. I don't, I, I I don't, don't think it does. I don't think are. it does. I didn't even know more. I didn't even know until more recently that Blade was even a Marvel. A Marvel just, property. Yeah. Because you and I used to. That's another one. You and oh, I used to God. love those movies. We have. Those to. movies are hysterical. That's I don't think I ever realized or I don't know how I didn't realize that. But so I think this is the first proper one because then you have like. Then it goes really from here. Yeah, there's just a bunch of shit. Right. So we'll get into all of this. I feel like maybe we'll get, we'll introduce them at, in the order they're released, maybe once every like six weeks or so, and that will allow us to carve through a nice amount of them. And I don't think we'll ever catch up, but it'll get us. I mean, I'm looking here, it'll get us to maybe the Avengers in the next year or something like that. Yeah. So, People are excited to see you talk talk about the Marvel movies for some reason. Us, but particularly you. So people are going to be psyched about this. Let this be the springboard, my friend. Indeed. So I remember seeing this movie. I saw it in the theater and I was in the shower before after working out and I was thinking about it. I saw it with for old school IGN fans. I saw it with um, Charles Agnette and David Clayman, old editors there. Okay. Charles works at Apple now. Clayman's like a an executive at some company now. And I, I was I was thinking about it. I was like, this was the moment in my life where I would basically do anything. I'd go see any movie. I'd go to any show go to any bar, go to any party, probably from like midway through college until like a couple of years into my adult life in quotes in San Francisco. I was like that. So this was one of those things I think I just got pulled into. Where it's like, you want to go see Iron Man? I'm like, yeah, or I right, get on the bus and and go about my business. And I actually always liked Iron Man. I don't I still don't know a great deal about the character. Yeah. And in fact, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I feel like I was going in positively and I remember leaving the movie being I was like, this is, this is a really fun movie. I, I remember being surprised by that, but not so much. Even though it's a Marvel movie, this was also in the time of uh, Dark Knight and all of that. And well, Batman Begins before that. And sure. so we were kind of coming up into a more serious and and uh, storied portion of superhero film history. But I was into this movie and in watching it again. So I watched it just last night or actually yesterday afternoon. I rented it on Amazon Prime. And as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, I think I've seen this again. I, I feel like I, there was a time after seeing in the theater where I saw it because some of the stuff was very familiar and then some of the stuff wasn't familiar at all. But that really was the beginning and the end of my MCU experience. I don't know anything about what happens in the other Iron Man movies and all the other things they introduced from the Avengers and so on and so forth. Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't know fucking anything. And I don't ever want to examine the films from that perspective. I want to go in order and I don't want to spoil things for myself. I've gotten this far. I don't, and by the way, it's some of those spoilers where someone would be like, you know, 
Star Lord is, uh, you know, half half man or something. And I'd be like, I don't even know what that. I don't, I don't even know what you mean anyway. It's one of those <laughs> things where you probably could, you probably couldn't spoil it for me even if you wanted to. But nonetheless, I'm not going to challenge you. Please don't. We're going to take it in that order. Does that make sense, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And the movies were designed for a general viewing audience, you know, for the masses. So you don't have to know the comic books. You could take it just from the MCU, jump movie to movie, and just get your knowledge from the film series and not from outside. I, you know, it helps, I guess, to give to get texture if you know more about said comic book or said character, villain, whatever. But it's not... I mean, that's one way... Of, that's only one way of doing it. These were made for... These, these are popcorn movies. You know, these are blockbusters made to take in maximum amounts of money. So they're for everybody, you know. And a lot of people just watch the movies and that's it. So that yeah. makes perfect sense. Well, I wanted to roll in with this with Neo JD who wrote into us on Patreon. And remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Early ad free access to the shows. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas. Vote on topics, submit topic ideas. We have some in the chamber from the audience. Both Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3 voted on by the audience will be coming in the the next few months. So we're working on that. A little further behind than we wanted to be. But Neo JD wrote in and said, I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say, finally, we get Colin doing MCU. My question (laughs) for you guys is, how well did you even know the character of Iron Man before this? Personally, I had known him from games and showing up in cartoons. But with even that basic knowledge, it was clear to me that RDJ had become the definitive Iron Man based on his charisma and wittiness. I think you would just say wit, maybe. But I don't know. Wittiness is fine, too. <laughs> but uh, Google Docs is not telling me that's an error, so I guess it is fine. But Wittiness is acceptable? Yeah. So okay. I will say that my familiarity with Iron Man was limited to... I remember seeing him in cartoon form, but I don't remember where that was in, on the 90s, in the 90s on some show, maybe. I don't know if he because i watched some x-men and i watched some spider-man for sure okay and i don't know if there was an iron man show in there or whatever i actually don't want to look i want to get your feedback on on this like where he might have shown up sure so in my mind's eye i saw him somewhere in that place and my friend eric who often comes up on the show who got me into D &D and and all this kind of stuff he also got me into kind of comic books for a little while he had all the he had well not all but he had a shit ton of comic book toys and people might remember in the in the mid 90s com- there were so many comic book toys that something was always like budget and going off the shelves yes and i remember going into kb or toys r us or something and just like everything was new to me because i didn't know anything so i was like yeah all right archangel for two bucks sure omega red for a dollar sure like these were cool characters silver samurai and all these guys i was pulling off the shelf and sure some of those guys were were Iron Man and Iron Man toys were so cool because you could take off. It didn't get all the way down to like the Tony Stark man in suit, but you could like take off his armor pieces, his missiles would shoot and all of that. So I think with the exception on the Marvel side, with the exception of Spider-Man, who I really like, as we talked about when we did the episode about Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man in 2002. And to a lesser degree, there were some like Psylocke and others that I really love in the X-Men, although we don't really see too much of her. I would say Iron Man's up there for me, but that comes from a point, a place of complete ignorance because I really don't know much about him apart from. And, and I agree, by the way, Robert Downey Jr. Oh. is intangible, in, in you know, in, indelibly linked rather with this film. So and this portrayal of Iron Man. So anyway, I'm going on. I want, I'm curious to know what you knew about Iron Man going into this film and what your memory, your first memories were of seeing this film. Yeah, you know what's crazy? Seeing this film, I don't think I did see it in the theater. Now, I have to start by saying, this movie 
this was a reminder. This movie is really good. And then it kind of dawned on me. Yes. You never hear anybody say anything bad about this movie. It's really, really a solid film. It, you know what? The, the ultimate honor for a movie, I think, is when time goes so fast when you're watching it. I was watching it again last night, pretty late, and I was laying on my living room floor and I was watching it on Disney Plus and I, you know, snuck a peek at the cable box and like I was an hour in and I was like, wow, that felt like 10 minutes. You know, that it's that type of movie. It moves quick, very entertaining. I guess it's a, it weighs in at about two hours without the credits yeah, and the end hours. sequence, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's just, it flashes by and it's so enjoyable. And of course, you know, grounded by that force of nature that is our DJ. We'll talk about him. But Iron Man's really special to me, actually, Kyle, because it's actually the first comic book I got into as a kid. And I was trying to think about why. I remember the first time picking up the comic. It was a very casual relationship I had with the comic. I wasn't getting every issue. I wasn't avidly at the comic book store every Wednesday. Or wherever. But when mom would go into the drugstore, into the pharmacy, I would look at the spinner rack. And for some reason, Iron Man just caught my attention. And every couple of weeks, I would go in and get an issue. And, you know, I, I wasn't even paying attention to the numbers. I think I was interested more in, you know, sort of the revolving cast of villains, the other heroes that would come in and out. And, of course, Iron Man himself, he just looked cool. And I was wondering, like, you weren't really into American comic books, Dig. So, like, what was the attraction when you were a kid? And I think a big part of it must have been combining the superheroes, the typical superheroes like Spidey, Superman, Batman, with some sort of robotic aesthetic, right? And I was already into, I had already on my radar, the Japanese robots, Mazinger Z, Tattoo Jin 28, Gigantor, all these characters, they're already on my radar from growing up with a Japanese family on our block who introduced me to that stuff before it was really big here. And I think that was part of the appeal, was that Iron Man sort of felt like one of those Japanese robots to me and it attracted to me. In fact, I kind of stumbled on Iron Man before I was even into Spider-Man. I think Iron Man brought me around to then collecting Amazing Spider-Man comics. And then later on, it would be X-Men until I discovered manga and just abandoned American comics in general. But I got an early start with Iron Man and with Tony Stark. So, And it's not like I even knew that much about the comics going in, but at least I had some sort of grounding with the character. He really always appealed to me, the look of Iron Man's robotic suit always you know that armored suit always really appealed to me and i don't remember seeing this in the theater though i must have i have it on dvd a very early sort of you know early-ish dvd pre-blu-ray and i think i only popped it in once and watched it once so i've only seen it twice now and suit what a treat man it's so good i mean there's so much to say about it of course as we said the film that effectively ignited the current day MCU as we know it today. I think Robert Downey and John Favreau are both really interesting components of this. I think they're both integral parts of the conversation. That'll be fun to talk about. The character of Iron Man, but also a movie, of course, that came out the year before Disney acquired Marvel. I think Disney announced the acquisition in summer of 2009. I think by the end of 2009, it was done. This movie came out the year before, and I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder how much encouragement this gave to the power brokers at Disney, you know, the suits, the money people, the, the bean counters over there, that encouraged them to buy it. Seeing how a property could do well, you know, especially something like Iron Man, because a lot of people, to me, I don't understand this, because Iron Man dates back 
to the early 60s. I think his first appearance in comics was like 63. And then by the late 60s, he had his own book, right? So he got very popular. Somewhere in the middle of that, somewhere in the throw of 65, 66, he had, his, he had his own animated series on television, okay? So the character was already pretty big, but you'll hear a lot of people say, well, Iron Man was kind of a B property. You know, it wasn't Spider-Man, it wasn't Superman, it wasn't the Dark Knight slash Batman. Iron Man was sort of a lesser known comic. It wasn't really on the general populace's radar. And I don't understand that because I, I feel like Iron Man is up there with all the characters I just mentioned. But if you think about it, if that is the case, this film single hand and Robert Downey Jr. and John Favreau single-handedly propelled Iron Man up to those ranks now with Spider-Man, Batman, because of course, and so, you know, you have the Superman films, you have the Tim Burton Batman films. You already have all these big things before Christopher Nolan was even a part of the conversation. I think this rose Iron Man to that stature. Those two guys were largely responsible. And then Disney taking up the baton only propelled it even further, if that makes sense. So it's actually kind of fascinating. Would Iron Man be as big as Iron Man is without RDJ, without John Favreau, without this film sort of setting off the fuse? And it's it's so it's so crazy to think about too. For me, also, it's very interesting. I think you have the same thing. You have the same sort of look. Capcom was also a big part of this for me, because the Marvel characters being in the Capcom 2D fighters was a big sort of appeal for me, a big crossover appeal, whether you want to say in the video game world, in an anime-centric sort of way, whatever. That was a big... I think Capcom doesn't get that credit. You know, you, you'll hear Disney get the credit for the current MCU, which they should. They're doing a great job with it. You'll hear Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. get the credit for kicking it off and igniting it with this film. But Capcom was already doing it. Capcom already took these characters that could have been sort of looked at as stale, maybe a little bit aging, uh, dusty, and they gave it fresh blood, you know? So that was a big part of the conversation for me too, seeing Iron Man, seeing War Machine, seeing Spider-Man, Wolverine, the X-Force characters like Cable and Psylocke, like seeing those characters in the Marvel fighter, in the Capcom fighters was a big part of it of the allure for me too, which I think sort of was the carrot and the stick that took me to the MCU and where I don't know if I would have been as fast to really go in for these films, not being a huge comic book fan as a, as a younger person, you know, it's interesting. I Marvel, Marvel versus Capcom is, is a huge thing. And for some characters, even X-Men versus street fighter before that. Sure. Absolutely. Was, was a big game as well. And although th that doesn't necessarily involve Iron Man, but it's true. I was just heaping praise on Marvel versus Capcom, specifically MVC2, of course, but so recent, I don't know what show it was on recently, but I was just saying, and I know you agree that has any game unified characters in such a coherent, a visually coherent way? I even think it does it better than Smash Brothers, which is a masterclass in doing it, too. Definitely. Because I don't think they get some of their characters right. And I think some characters really stick out like a sore thumb in that world. Like I even, I even think Mega Man and Smash Brothers is a little circum like a little circumspect. Okay. And they're pulling but they're also pulling give them credit. They're pulling from a much larger pool. Sure. Right. Sure. But I but my thought was that's true. But my my thought simply was why does Roll and Iron Man and BB Hood and 
Gambit or whoever all look like they belong together. Absolutely. make any sense. And I love it. I think that's part of the reason why these these crossover fighters are not often approached because it's difficult. And so you're right. Iron Man is iconic in in that game. People love Iron Man. Oh, in that game. So good. And so, yeah, of course, we have to give Marvel versus Capcom a shout out. But I am glad that and obviously it would come up that we were talking about the MCU itself because Sean McDaniel wrote into us on Patreon. Yo, and he Sean. says, hey, guys, first time questioner for knockback. What? Few movies have stuck with me like Iron Man has. I specifically remember the first time I saw it when I was 13, and that rarely happens. Looking back, I realized that this movie was what made me realize that I didn't have to hide the nerdy stuff I liked from my friends and peers because this stuff was starting to become cool to the public eye. With no disrespect to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, do you guys feel that this movie was what truly started off the renaissance of superhero movies and the boom of nerd pop culture as a whole? Thanks for the wonderful shows you all put out. It's appreciated very much. I oh, actually... Very nice. I, yeah, thank you, Sean, of course. I, I disagree with him. Simply because I feel like Spider-Man and some others to a lesser degree that aren't weren't necessarily affiliated at this time or wouldn't long be affiliated like Fox properties like X-Men and stuff. Sure. I feel like a lot of these movies walked so that when we got to Iron Man, it wasn't shocking that it was great. And I totally agree, by the way, with what you said earlier. It's a great movie. When I was watching it. Again, I was like, this is a fantastic movie. There's nothing wrong really with this movie. I'm not saying it's like one of the great movies of all time, but it's kind of a hard movie to critique because there's so much to like about it. And I feel like our minds were open to it, maximally open to it at the right time based on some camp that we saw earlier that failed, some successful things that were embryonic, like not so much embryonic, but like I've told you X-Men, for instance, dad and I watched X-Men on accident because it was like in a DV, the wrong DVD case at Blockbuster. And we okay. were already home. <laughs> and then we watched it. And we we're like, oh, this was really cool. Not bad at all. I think that was kind of a seminal moment for dad, actually, because dad's like now. I mean, this is 20 something years later, but he's he, he watches like Gotham and shit. It's like, what is what is going on with you, dad? But so he I think maybe that had some. So, so yeah, some sort of format, although he's always been very nerdy with with sci fi and fantasy and all that. But I do feel like this movie benefits from the environment set, not only on the Marvel side, but the precedent being set at this time during DC's movie, specifically with Batman, that I feel like if Iron Man, like, let me back up. If Spider-Man yeah. in 2002 actually came out in 2008, it would have been even bigger than it was somehow. And I think Iron Man, although not a huge hit by MCU standards, right. Making only like five or six hundred million dollars. Wow, that's it <laughs> is. I think it. I think others walk so it could run. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is I think in a lot of people's memories, especially if they're younger, I think this seems like one of the first really successful superhero movies. And I think if you look at the current Disney slash Marvel MCU and you trace it back to this film, of course, you know, knowing not only how successful the MCU is, but also how good the movies are largely, you know, and you trace it back to this original, you know, letter A, then it's easy to see that. But you're right. I mean, Tim Burton was already doing this. They already did it with the Superman movies. You know, Donner was already doing it with Superman. Raimi is a big part of the conversation. So the tone was already set. I think if you the X-Men films, the series of films, I was just looking at this. And I had a list of the X-Men films brought up. I think it's an interesting conversation. I think it, the X-Men is a separate conversation, but it's also sort of an interesting small part of this conversation. Because if you look at the X-Men movies, if you look at the X-Men films, 
you kind of feel like some of the casting was great. Some of the characters you think of, you know, you think of the, the iconic casting for Wolverine and even smaller characters like Sabretooth, how, how, you know, of course, Professor X, like you think of, there's a lot of bright spots there. But in the throes of that series, I think some of the look and feel and energy of the comic book was missing. And I think it felt like, to me, looking back at those movies, they always seem like lukewarm successes to me. Like they were okay. Like there was good spots, but it could have been a lot better. It could have been more like the comic book, whatever. And I think in those movies, you feel this energy of Sony struggling with Marvel, what characters could be included, what characters can't, what are we beholden to for film deals and character deals. And I think for some reason, those things, those troubles shine through in the films and they leave they leave them feeling like a little bit less successful than a Sam Raimi Spider-Man or like this John Favreau Iron Man film and certainly the Avenger films to follow and everything. So I think also the X-Men films sort of helped buoy this a little bit because people saw that a comic book property could be done right and it would satisfy the general audiences and it would satisfy traditional comic book fans as well. And maybe you can make an argument that the Iron Man fan base was a little smaller than something like X-Men, Superman, certainly Dark Knight, but it did work. It sort of appeased everybody. I think this is one of the first films that sort of appeased everybody. Maybe you could say that for Blade, but there aren't that many Blade fans. You know what I mean? So this was the first more major it. thing that had a history dating back to the 60s that sort of made every, satisfied everybody, it seems like. So I think that's where this movie took up the mantle and sort of ran with it, if that makes sense. No, definitely. I also feel like in, in hindsight, it's impressive that they were able to get it off the ground, the MCU, with kind of one and a half arms tied behind their back. Like X-Men is certainly it's funny that we look at it now, because let me say this. Growing up, was there any dispute that X-Men was the biggest Marvel property? I, I don't know. I mean, in my era, definitely not. No, and, that was your that was definitely your yeah. generation. And then, sure. of course, like you were saying, X-Factor and all the things that came along sure. like, in that era as well. Weapon X and all that. That was huge. And then you would think second would be Spider-Man for sure. There was the cartoon and yep. all of the rest and the great video games like Maximum Carnage on SNES and all of the rest. Great video games in that era for some of these properties. X-Men as well. The Brawler from the early 90s. And these were like acquired by other people like during Marvel's point of desperation. And you can't even believe like the, the, the contracts that these things found themselves under to save Marvel and I think wisely, the companies like Sony were like, we're not going to just give this back to you. This is incredibly valuable. And Absolutely. what it forced them to do was to see like what they had left, because obviously also caught up in it was like Fantastic Four and all that. But no, one, they're never going to be able to make Fantastic Four cool. I think the Human Torch is a cool character, but otherwise you're not really going to be able to do. They tried so many. And I love yeah. the thing, but they tried so many times oh. that it it's already saddled with that baggage. You know what I mean? Like, oh, another one. You're going to try again? Like, I, I feel like somebody has to do it just to like, so they could stop. You know what I mean? Like right. somebody just do it right so you could stop trying to do it. You know, that's an interesting conversation. The fantastic. Definitely. And I, I just, yeah, no, I agree. And I feel like I've tried to with a, a couple of those movies. It's just like, this is horrible. But <laughs> I just think it's the characters like who the, uh, anyway, but I, I just feel like it's 
obviously in hindsight so impressive that they began with like the Hulk, who's a character. I mean, you know, Lou Ferrigno and all that. I, I mean, it's not like a character that wasn't there, but you're dealing, I think, an Iron Man and, and, and then you're getting into like Thor and sure. These are not characters that were very relevant. I'm sorry they weren't. I mean, I, I grew up with some sort of cognizance and it's funny that they had to make their bones, as it were, with these lesser characters. And then now it took them all of these years to get Spider-Man. And now I think X-Men is going to be back involved in all of this as well. I hope so. Fo- I think it with Fox. I think I think I think I think so. Right. I think that has to be because now Disney with the Fox, acquired Fo- sure, the Fox yeah. properties. Right. Yeah. So yeah. they I don't want to say they earned it. They bought it, but they're getting access to the keys to the kingdom now when they're best prepared to deal with them. And I must say I don't have a personal opinion on this because I've not seen any of the other films. We'll be able to talk about it maybe in a few years and I'll be able to say it in some sort of more meaningful way. But I don't think they've necessarily fucked this up too badly. People love these movies so that they were able to do that because I for years I stopped doing it after a while. I'm like superhero movies are going to die. Superhero movies are going to die. No, when they used to launch those huge and they still do these huge arrays where it's like Doctor Strange and all this stuff like WandaVision. I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? (laughs) You know, people but every love time, that show, but every time it comes out, I, I haven't seen and it. Then, and then the only thing I want is because I really like the character, the Punisher. I'd like to see them. I don't know that he would belong in the MCU, but I would like to see them do something with that character. But but they people did, love this didn't stuff. they? There was a Punisher series. Yeah, that's another one that sort of was in limbo between Fox, Sony, Disney. I don't know. I don't know. the. Punisher yeah, I don't think well. he's like in the I don't know if he would even belong in the MCU, but I mean, he's in Marvel. But I, but anyway. That that aside, I just feel like it's impressive. It's an impressive feat. And I hadn't really thought about it until very recently that in working in reverse, they worked as hard as they did, because I think that maybe this actually would have been an ill-fated endeavor had they had to rely or had they had X-Men and others to rely upon. Right. And they didn't. And they still made it work. And then the in hindsight, Iron Man's the biggest thing in the world, but it just wasn't that way. It wasn't. And it's incredible. It's a really incredible thing. And we'll talk more about this in a little while because I have a question from the audience that will get into just how important Iron Man is historically. But we brought up John Favreau and Gavin Morin wrote into us and said, hey, C&D, my, my question is pretty straightforward. What do you think of John Favreau as a director? He was really only known for a few acting roles before he made Elf in 2003, which what I, I would argue is one of the best Christmas movies of all time. So to go on to eventually work on the film that kickstarted the MCU, which is now one of the largest franchises in Hollywood, is wildly impressive to me. Not only that, but he wrote and directed Chef in 2014, which is more or less about his experience working on Iron Man 2. And now he plays a huge role behind the scenes working on The Mandalorian. I would go as far as to say that he's one of the most talented filmmakers working today. I guess I'm just curious what you two think of him as a director in general. Thank you for the content. I've been really loving the recent run of episodes. Thank you, Gavin, for writing in. What do you make of Jon Favreau? I was looking at his filmography. Obviously, he's he's acted in a bunch of things and is well known in that regard, but I was looking at the movies he he wrote or directed, and obviously you and I have an affinity for movies like Swingers oh, and Made so was his first like his directorial debut. But yep. it is interesting that he got the keys to Iron Man with it not very much on his on his um, resume. And it seems almost crazy when you look back at it that he got it, but he did and he did a great job. He did the sequel as well, and he's behind the scenes with some other stuff. So what do you think about him as a as a director and as a, a creative force? He has such an interesting trajectory. You know, here's this guy hailing from New York, sort of an indie filmmaker, a writer slash screenwriter, also an actor, a fledgling director at one point. Now, Swingers, I never realized before researching him for the episode, he didn't even direct Swingers. He wrote it. 
yeah, he co-wrote wrote it. it and he acted. And they tried to get that film off the ground for years with Ron Livingston and Vince Vaughn and, you know, everybody's sort of married to this thing and trying to get it off the ground. And then, as you said, made his directorial debut. And it almost seemed like his beginnings seem like they come from a very indie place. You know, he feels like a very New York centric filmmaker, but he apparently he had this incognito nerd thing going on all along. Not only was he a film nerd, but he was a, a sci-fi nerd. He was a proper Star Wars nerd and he was a proper comic book guy. And I think people didn't weren't looking at him that way in in the beginning. And, you know, to go on the elf story, the, the film Elf is such an interesting conversation because when he went into that with Will Ferrell, they said, you know what? It, it's so ingenious and it's crazy that no one did this beforehand. They said, you know what? We want to make something that's going to be a Christmas staple. Like It's a Wonderful Life, like Christmas Story. It's going to be on rotation on cable TV year after year, every holiday season. We're going to make another mainstay, must-watch, Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, sort of vehicle that everybody's going to enjoy over and over again on the holidays. They're going to be addicted to it. And they did it. I mean, to go out and say you're going to do that and then do it, you know, and nothing was really came along for maybe decades before Elf. You know, all the old mainstays, Christmas staples were, you know, holdovers from years earlier. So to do that, I think that gave him a lot of clout. I think that success, the success of that film and, and the, the power of that production. And of course, you had Will Ferrell in that. You had J- Jimmy Kahn was a big part of that, the success formula for that. But they knew that going in. And to then go on and say, okay, we're going to get the keys to the kingdom for you know Marvel. Don't forget, this was pre-Disney. Marvel was bankrolling this movie. It was a big risk for them. And... They took him on, and I'm not sure it was always a marriage made in heaven. You know, he had the champion in for RDJ to, to play the role Iron Man, Favreau did. There was a lot of uh, hemming and hawing over that and butting heads. But then, you know, of course, the success of Iron Man, Iron Man 2. And then don't forget, he directed, you know, just in the Disney camp, he went on to direct the live-action Lion King, the live-action Jungle Book. And he's actually credited with creating The Mandalorian, which is, you know a blockbuster hit, you know, not only writing it, not only directing many of the episodes, but also creating it. So John Favreau's at the height of his powers. And this is kind of where it all started. It's not where it started proper, but it's where it's where blockbuster popcorn movie John Favreau started. So to trace his sort of origins through all that, such an interesting story. And I think he's just really smart. When you hear him talk about the making, you know, the backbone of the traditions or the foundations of making this film or any of his projects, he really feels inherently connected to the property and he sort of toes the line between being faithful to the source material and taking it in a direction that's necessary for the film version, if that makes sense. He, he's very good at honoring both sides of that. You know, he's very honoring and being beholden to the, the original fans and making it appealing to everybody. And I think that's kind of a tight, that's a hard tightrope to walk. And that's a hard skill to have. Not everybody has that. And, you know, just in the little things like he talks about with this film, like seeing that Stan Lee with Iron Man, right? Like Stan Lee said, like in his creating Iron Man, that he wanted to sort of channel this character that wasn't very safe. That was kind of an unsavory dude and was kind of unappealing. And he wanted to literally like 
cram it down people's throats and make you like him. Like Iron Man, Tony Stark is not like the virtuous Boy Scout out of the out of the gate character like Superman, right? Or he's not coming from a place of vengeance like Batman. Like he's a dude with a checkered past. And there's a character, there's an arc there. And, you know, they said they wanted to channel this sort of Howard Hughes-esque and take, take Iron Man out of the Metropolis, like take him out of the Gotham-esque New York Metropolis-type setting that sort of defines all the other main superheroes and take him up to the West Coast, which isn't a comic book thing, apparently, and do this whole Howard Hughes thing where it's like, the you know the crazy eccentric genius Howard Hughes's obsession was aviation. Of course, Tony's is sort of robotics, but it's the same thing. Like taking that character and making it their own, but having enough of that core material to base it off of, where you're still honoring it. You're just maybe even you could argue improving it. So I think Favreau just brings that, and then with the casting, just the inherent you know sort of instincts of saying like. It's got to be Robert Downey Jr. It can't be anybody else. And look where that decision landed them. I mean, Robert, you can't even imagine the MCU without Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man at the, at the center of that. So I think that speaks to John Favreau. Just that speaks to John Favreau's abilities. And I think you're going to see him go on to do a lot of things. I mean, I, he's one of the major tastemakers at Disney right now. And I think he's one of those guys that, you know, give him the creative control. You know, let him run it. Let him run the show. I know you got the other guys over there at the def- at the different things with Marvel, with Star Wars, with Henson, with all the other things that Disney owns. But I can't even imagine another tastemaker as, as strong as Jon Favreau. He just seems to be able to do it all. He's got a great sense of, and maybe so, you know, he's got a great sense of appeal. And I think maybe that those indie roots also helps, you know, in, in keeping him maybe appealing to, the older, more persnickety film people like I would consider myself, you know, where it's like, I'll watch anything John Favreau does. I just think he's got great instincts. Well, you, we can't avoid talking about Robert Downey Jr. anymore, nor should we. So let's hear from Jeshua Anderson, who wrote in and said, sup, my boys. Oh, fellas, this movie is probably the most important movie in RDJ's life, not because it led him to eventually being filthy rich, which it did, but because it no doubt saved his life. Prior to this, he was a drug addict convict who just got out of prison. Favreau fought at Disney to get him the role, to which RDJ grinded his mind and body for months just to nail the audition and become Stark. The movie is great for that alone. It is interesting to think about Robert Downey Jr. before this and after, and how we almost take for granted that he is who he is now, but the certainly has, a, a like you said, a checkered past, very similar in some ways to Tony Stark. I think the, sure. the parallels are there of the brash vice ridden fly by the seat of your pants kind of person, obviously from different places, but he does a great job in this film and he does a great job in this role. And I think Jeshua is right that this movie certainly, I think we can all agree saved his career and his reputation. And uh, I'm curious how you think he does in this role. I want to get into the deeper texture of who this character is, because I think that's also interesting, but I just think that, there's a conflict, right, between, not a conflict, but who is the ultimate Spider-Man? Who, who is Spider-Man when in your mind's eye? There are a few options, right? Right. There's, there's no other option, and I don't think there's ever going to be another option. There's even another option for Superman in a lot of people's minds. 
But it's hard to believe that they'll eventually have to get, you know, not get rid of. But Robert Downey Jr. is going to have to be retired at some point. I don't know if that's happened yet or not, but Iron Man will have to be played by someone else, I assume. And I wonder how that's going to go. And I think that he brings this that gravitas to the role. It's, it is him. It's very similar to Han Solo or something. Where, But obviously we liked Solo as well, so maybe not the greatest example. But nonetheless, <laughs> what do you what do you think about um about Robert Downey Jr. in this role and generally as an actor. He single-handedly makes me very excited for you to see particularly the Avengers movies, but the whole MCU after this, because I know how much you enjoy him. I know how much you enjoy the character. Now, I can't go to everything you just said in the last few sentences. I can't spoil, so we can't go in that direction. But one thing that occurred to me with Robert Downey Jr., a couple of things, actually. You think about him pre-2008 or pre-Iron Man, he actually has a really long filmography in film and television. So he really, and of course, his trials and tribulations are well-storied, right? You could read about that on the internet. But he really must have been struggling. And he really must have had both feet, you know, nine toes out of Hollywood to be fucking up with a filmography like that. And you think about pre-Iron Man, you know, you think about things like Weird Science. You think about Back to School, which we've talked about on the show, but nothing, and you know, this guy, he's a great actor. He played Charlie Chaplin, for crying out loud. Like, you weren't going to be an unsuccessful actor playing a part like that. Like, he's just, he's got skills. But I think mm. because of everything he went through and the similarities to the Tony Stark character, that growth, I think it's a very genuine thing that he brings to the role. And I wonder if you had just a really talented actor, somebody besides RDJ, would you still have that same authentic performance that I can't, you know, that whole feel of I can't even think of anybody else to play this part after watching this, let alone the next films, which I think he just cements it with each performance. It's such an interesting part of the conversation. And I think he really does have also a very real life likability, a charm, a charisma, maybe a, mag a magnanimous sort of nature, or at least the character does. And I think that's why, if you take Stan Lee and saying, I'm going to take this very unappealing character, I'm going to make him appeal to you. I think only a guy with the chops of Robert Downey Jr. could pull that off. With the chops, with the actual real life history, with the charisma, with the likability, because here you have this selfish, self-centered, hedonistic playboy, right? A, you know, essentially completely unapologetic womanizer he's making his life off of basically war he's a war profiteer essentially right and he's got everything he wants for nothing he's this billionaire he's he maybe even crosses over the beginning of this film maybe even crosses over into smarmy territory you know he's he's got his own fleet not only he's got a private jet he's got his own fleet of private stewardesses and there's a stripper pole on the plane like we are not in prototypical superhero territory here. Definitely this could not. cross over into very unlikable very fast. And you know what? He's still likable from the very beginning of being in the Humvee with those troops and answering the questions about Maxim Magazine and signing autographs. Like, even though he's kind of this dickhead and he's completely self-absorbed, you still like him. How many actors could have pulled that off, you know, from the, from the jump? Which is really, which is, which is amazing. So... I, I can't even imagine. It, he, I literally can't even imagine somebody else playing the part. Here's another thing that appealed before I flip it back over to you, Kyle, that sort of occurred to me about Robert Downey Jr. 
I never really thought about how old he is. You look at his filmography, dates back to 1970. So, okay, he was a child actor. I get it, right? He had a Hollywood family, the whole thing. But I think you could have told me now, he was born in 65, so that makes him, what, 56 years old now, I think? Something like that, 56, 57. You could have told me he was 50, and you could have told me he was pushing 70, and I wouldn't have been surprised. I would have said, yeah, he's aging well. He's one of those timeless dudes. He has a real timelessness to him, not just his acting, his performances, or the parts he's done, but him himself. There's something about him. You know, besides being handsome, besides being a movie star, and besides being generally recognizable to 99% of people out there, he's one of those dudes, right? Talk about that with David Bowie. Like, everybody knows who David Bowie is. Everybody knows who Paul McCartney is. He's, he's that guy. But beyond that, he's got something. He's got this everyday relatability. He's got this appeal. And, dude, I mean, just, like, makes the movie so enjoyable to watch. Like, it would have been a fraction of good without him. You know, it would have never gotten this close to being good without RDJ the, at the core, at the very center of it. I was taken by his filmography as well. You had mentioned earlier how lengthy it is, and it is long. And what I noticed was around the time he did this, he obviously appears, although I have not seen it. I mean, famously, he appears at the end of The Hulk that I think begins. Although I think Iron Man begins the post credit sequence, which I don't think I even watched. So I I noticed around this time, he starts playing Sherlock Holmes around this time for a few yes, movies, I think, as well. Richie, yep. And he really slows down and does it very and when you remove all of the mcu things where he plays iron man he does almost nothing and since iron man has come out which is fascinating i think he's kind of i think he realized he had a, got a second chance it worked out awesome just enjoy your money and chill and i think he's he's largely doing that but i think he does bring a lot to this role and i like this character and i want to get deeper into the character let's start with jackson mcgowan who wrote into us and said hey boys Hope you are well from Australia. Yo. I'm wondering what your thoughts on the Playboy lifestyle that was represented by Tony Stark that was never really shown in any other superhero movies, as Dagan was saying before and after the Iron Man movie. Do you think Disney could get away with this now? It's interesting to think about about it from the Disney point of view. I was thinking of a few moments in the the film where, you know, the, the dancing flight attendants, he's he's very drunk all the time and all the rest. But it really seems to work. And I don't know if they would do it that way now, but it's those aspects of his personality that make him most fun. And there's a lot to say about him as a character. I think that's that's deeper than than Spider-Man. That's deeper than some of this other stuff that we've talked about. Deeper than Batman, I think, certainly. I don't, I don't think there's that much depth to Batman. I think Batman's just really fun and interesting. But he's like, it's Bruce Wayne's origin story is not that fascinating to me. Right. But... Tony Stark is not only a rich playboy, but he's a weapons dealer. And I've always been fascinated in fiction with the weapons dealer. As you know, I was a huge Destro fan when I was a kid. The Mars Corporation was his corporation. There was there used to be an argument about and they used to release the Marvel comics about like the order of operations where everyone sat, sat. But it was always like where Destro's kind of outside this. He's like the guy. He has his own army. He has his own weapons, his own you know, they, he had his own line of toys and all that kind of stuff, which was cool. And ever since that, as a child, I was always interested in that. Who supplies the weapons? Those are the people that have all of the power and all of the manipulative reasons to keep conflict going. And I think the revival of Iron Man 
at the time it was revived in 2008, so being written, conceived 2005, 2006, 2007, this is a time where we have a lot to say about this and about, about Halliburton, about Boeing and all, of the, and all of the weapons that are made out of all of these different places and the Iraq war and obviously the Afghanistan war is ongoing. So I think that all kind of plays into it as well. And so when you take this, this genius and he's an alcoholic and he's a womanizer or whatever and he's flies by the seat of his pants and he's a weapons dealer and he he's he's a playboy and he's on all the covers of the magazines a pretty interesting character also as we'll talk about later he is one of the few superheroes that says who he is so good which which i think is cool too so oh the ending is so good dude. i didn't even remember that at all i was like what? i didn't actually either yeah i didn't actually either i was really fun so, so good so what do you think about all of that in terms of the playboy lifestyle and, and I guess the character, the very character, like the weapons dealer character, how that deals with Americana and American conflict in the and it, it I think Iron Man has a lot to say, actually. It definitely. Yeah, it's timely, especially in a in a Middle Eastern Afghani perspective, right? Modern time as per 2008. I love a lot of the things you said. I love the fact of what you said of like that profession seemingly having to perpetuate war in order to make ends, right? In order to make money. I think there's two things you could say. There's the money aspect, of course, and then there's the profession. And of course, those two things are interconnected as well. I often wonder if Iron Man was Marvel's answer, like Tony Stark was Marvel's answer to Bruce Wayne. I, I never heard Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or Don Heck talk about that. Maybe they have. But I always feel like, you know, Batman, Bruce Wayne predates Iron Man by a couple of decades, I think, at least. And yeah, more than that, I think. So I always wonder if that was like a way to bring in the eccentric billionaire character. Of course, we already drew parallels to like the Howard Hughes type. But here's the thing about Tony Stark's character that I think is fascinating. It really is one of true growth, reckoning, realization. It's not, again, it's not just a virtuosity like a Superman. It's not coming out of revenge. It's not a kid learning how to deal with his powers like Spider-Man. It's something, it's an awakening. You know, this character has a real arc. He really learns that and sort of disavows, he learns lesson and disavows his former self. More so than any other super superhero that I could, that I could readily think of. And the war profiteer angle is really interesting because you have this guy that has his fortunes built on war, on destruction. And Tony is sort of like, we see from the very beginning of the film, just looking at it from a film perspective without the comic book, we see even through all that, the way he communicates with the troops, the way he's joking around, he's sort of lighthearted, he's answering questions. He's not aloof necessarily. He's a little smarmy, but he's not aloof. He's approachable. He's already likable. There's a good guy in there somewhere. We see that from the beginning. So... There's that whole thing of sort of going against the grain of your nature or how much, how much do the billions matter when you're flying in the face of your own soul, right? Like you're definitely mindfully ignoring that side of yourself or trying to suppress that side of yourself. We don't see that he's like an out and out bad guy who doesn't have feelings or sensitivity or empathy. Like Tony doesn't read that way. So it feels like for the beginning, to me, if you just look at the film, like this was going to be an inevitability that he was going to sort of disavow his previous life 
and take up the mantle of a good guy and wanting to, in fact, make up for lost time and, and do and do well. So that's a really fascinating part of the character for me is like, you know, you have this guy who's sort of just enjoying life, enjoying his millions, enjoying his cars, his women, his estate in Malibu, this amazing hat, this unbelievable house looks like a, you know, looks like a bad guy's lair, like a mountain, like volcano lair. Like he's going to leave all that behind because he woke up essentially, which is such an appealing, such an appealing notion, I think. For audiences, whether whether you're reading a comic book or watching a film or watching a TV show, it's just good fiction. And that's the basis of this character. And I think I forgot about that with with Tony Stark. You always hear Tony Stark. You think of it in the same breath as Bruce Wayne. You think of the, the, the robotic suit. You think of his allies. You think of Spidey being the mentor to Peter Parker. You think of the Avengers. You think of all those things. But you forget, like, this character came from a pretty dark place. And there was an awakening there. And I think this movie really buoys that part of the story, you know, and maybe even brings it to the forefront even more so than the comic book does, which is, you know, that's good storytelling. And you had mentioned earlier, too, I, I do like the West Coast nature of Iron Man. It's funny. I, I, I saw the movie and obviously had no context for it at the time when I'd seen it. But that's like my old neighborhood. I, I lived in Santa Monica and so to see the Malibu Hills and then they go down to the boardwalk and How stuff cool when he's that? flying around. It's like, I'm like, that's like a few blocks from where I lived. So that, that was kind of cool to see that. And I agree that 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 is a special part of him as well. I do feel like on the other side, I, maybe there is one criticism I have of the film, which is that I feel like the film in some way is missing a villain. But we have one. I just don't feel like it's really it really it works fine, but it's a little different, I guess. Sarah Emery wrote in about this. She says, hey, C&D. The villain of Obadiah in this movie is so memorable for me. My brother and I love to quote some of his lines, but what we always found strange is that he is that he initiates a video call with Tony while he is in bed shirtless and angles the camera to show off his chest. All I can say is you called him. You couldn't have gotten dressed first or at least angled the phone to only show your face. Maybe this is the first inkling we're supposed to have that he's not totally an upstanding fellow. What do you two think of his character? Thank you for the amazing show as always. Thank you, Sarah, for writing in. So thanks, Sarah. We had a few people write in about this character and i think he's interesting because first of all jeff bridges is awesome oh, but so and i think i think he's great in the role i think this character is fascinating because i don't think he's a they may they kind of force him into the villain territory like super villain territory by operating the machine at the end but i also couldn't help but think that i'm like well i don't want to get too nerdy here but he is destroying the company like the company tony is destroying their company and Although they have this amazing ability to to pivot to the arc reactor, and, right. and I would question that they have literally no reason not to pivot to that technology. War is very profitable in the short run, but even more profitable, but would be like infinite energy and and productive productive things like that. So that also doesn't make sense. But I was thinking about it where I was like, Obadiah is stuck between the antagonist and some other force. Where like, of course he's going to be mad. You're destroying their company and. I just obviously he gets more into the villainous territory later. There, there becomes less gradient with him later on, which I, I thought was kind of disappointing because he's a little more complicated. But I think that this movie actually I remember I actually asked Mike, I'm like, who is the bad guy in this movie? At, at some point, I'm like, is it like is it going to be like I was trying to think, I'm like, who is the bad guy? Is it Dr. Dr. Doom or something? Yeah, some yeah. Random character. So I, I assume he comes in at some point, but I just didn't remember. And then as the movie went on and it became clear, I'm like, oh, the bad guys are 
the random Arabs and Obadiah. Those are the bad guys in the film. So talk to me a little bit about Jeff Bridges and this character of Obadiah and, and how you feel about him. Yeah, I wonder if they ushered in like one of the main Iron Man villains like Doctor Doom, Mandarin, one of the other main dudes. Would Was, was their approach or was their perspective like that could confuse things? So they kind of kept the villain in the family, which... Makes sense for an origin story, right? Is you're gonna say this is this is the this is the original villain. In fact, one of the ones that helped spurn up the story and, cre- you know, essentially create Iron Man. It's interesting because you know that Obadiah. I don't know the I don't know the character in the comic books, but you know this was a friend or an associate of Stark Industries dating back to Tony's dad, and that Obadiah is still the second in command. And it's, it's really Tony's company where they run it together, but it's essentially Tony's company. He answers to Tony. And how their values become different, right? Whereas everything's fine when Tony's, you know, into being a billionaire and profiteering on, you know, profiting on making these missiles and, you know, profiteering during wartime and all that kind of stuff. But once Tony changes his tact or once he changes his desire of what he wants his company to be, you know, that that flies in the face of what Obadiah wants. What I like about Jeff Bridges' performance is I forgot what happened. And if you watch this film, it seems like he's a pretty magnanimous dude. Like you don't know, he doesn't let on. There's no sort of tipping that this character is going to be bad for like the first hour. You know, you have to kind of, it's it sort of goes south with his expressions and the way the Obadiah character is handling things in the second half of the film. But in the beginning, you really keep it really keeps you guessing. Now you have this Raza character who's this seemingly just this seemingly um, stock, unkillable villain, the what the leader of the Ten Rings, this Afghani sort of tribe that's sort of terrorizing the countryside, which is a sort of vanilla villain, you know, not yeah, very exciting, but definitely yeah. you know something there to give Tony something to fight against or to you know exact revenge upon or whatever. The Obadiah character is a little more different because they, you know, it's a family friend. It's a storied history. Obadiah was a mentor to Tony, you know, apparently, and brought Tony along and sort of taught him everything he knows. And it's it's interesting that when Tony wants to change, that you know, you're wondering, like, I guess you know, you got this sort of fatherly character. Is Obadiah is he going to bring Obadiah along? And you know, it's the opposite. Obadiah becomes his enemy and he tries to, you know, stop, stop Tony. What I love about Jeff Bridges' performance, though, he's an interesting one because he has, he's so distinctive. His acting style, his inflection, his cadence, you know, his delivery. He has such a flavor. You always think of the dude, right? But yeah, for me, this is maybe the role I could think of for Jeff Bridges of any other role that he sort of blends in to. You know, he sort of, get, Jeff Bridges gets lost in there. You almost forget it's him. Despite the voice, despite that gravelly, you know, inflection and all that kind of stuff, he actually brings something to the role that's pretty original for him. He's a, it's a good performance. I really like, I don't know that you hear about it enough. He's really good in this. Yeah, he is. Now, one interesting aspect of the, the Iron Man character to me, and something I noticed quickly, although I guess it just wasn't that notable to me at the time based on my limited exposure to comic book movies then and and still, I guess, to this to a degree now, is that he blatantly kills people. And Simon Payne wrote in about this and said, so what do you guys think about Tony just straight up murdering terrorists in this movie? Do you think this will one day be one of the last edgy movies that Marvel puts their official stamp on? I don't know what happens in the second and third movie, but 
I was I like that. That seems more realistic to me. I always hated that villains just, or that superheroes. We've discussed this with Batman and others. It's like just you don't have to kill everyone, but you, you might want to kill some of these dudes like right. the Joker. Just kill him. Just kill him. He's going to get away. They're going to try him and put him in, in Arkham Asylum or whatever. He's going to get out. Just kill him. But I liked how this movie kind of just embraced that Tony is just he's he kills dozens of people in this movie. So what do you think about that aspect of him? Yeah, it is interesting. It is a lot different than Spidey. It's a lot different than Superman. It's a lot different than Batman. It's a lot different than your other heavies, which is which is, which is an interesting part of the conversation. I didn't even really think about that. But when he does fly back to Afghanistan, it is kind of a mission of revenge at that point. You know, not only are the, is that are the ten rings terrorizing that those poor Afghani civilians, you know, an Afghan innocent Afghani village, but you know, Tony's going back to get the guys that nearly killed him you know and you know he escaped by the by the skin of his teeth and i like that he goes in with such vengeance you know it feels like a proper payoff they feel like proper bad guys i guess and maybe part of that is because they're a little bit faceless again they're a little bit mundane a little bit vanilla they just it just kind of appear like you know these are terrorists you know that's what the movie and again dating it back to 2008 has that very timely feel of like, yeah, kill the terrorist type of thing. But it's an interesting part of the conversation because he is a likable, Tony is a likable dude, but he does get the job done. You know, he's not afraid to take, take some bodies, which does make it an interesting conversation. I think. What do you think about Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts? We brought her up at the very beginning. I like this, this character. And I, I was thinking, that it is pretty interesting to insert stars. I mean, obviously, someone like obviously MJD is is uh, or MDJ rather is is different. But getting someone like Jeff Bridges or Gwyneth Paltrow involved, I feel like gives this movie a lot of credibility. And and I was thinking, I was trying to think about it from a strategic point of view. Obviously, they bring a lot of acting skill to this, but. It almost makes it okay, I feel like, for parents to get involved in liking these movies alongside their kids or to have some sort of draw when it's like, well, it's not like schlock Steven Seagal kind of shit. No offense, I like Steven Seagal, but it's like these are <laughs> these are legitimate actors involved in this project that it probably brings some sort of gravitas and maybe lessens the grumpiness of a parent going in, being dragged in with the memory of Fantastic Four or whatever. And they're like, oh, God, Great now point, I'm going to be involved with Iron Man. So how do you feel about her and the character the, my one thing, my one critique about because I obviously they it's it's very it's very sexual. There's a lot of tension between them. Sure. But between Pepper and, and Tony. But I I was remarking through the movie. I'm like, I wish they slow played this a little more. I, I wish that I guess they didn't know that they were going to be able to get more shots at it. But obviously, but it's like, ah, I wanted her to stay in kind of the platonic space. And have that tension build and have their, some sort of payoff later. Yes. I feel, like they, I feel like they moved too quickly with that. And that was a little disappointing, but I understand why. But anyway, talk to me a little bit about Gwyneth Paltrow and, and what she brings to the film. You're right. That does feel rushed, right? Like, hold on to that. That's that's a that's a get like we're we're, we're on board for that. Like, let us right. dr draw like draw us along a little bit with the carrot, the stick. But, I, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is so interesting to me. I love the way she could kind of fly between playing like a more eccentric role like Margot Tenenbaum, and then she could do a block, a proper blockbuster film. She could swing, she could swing in any way she wants. She's just a great, she's just a great actress. You know, she's really great, really skillful. 
And I love her chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. She, they have a great chemistry. They really do. You love that sort of sly love interest, that sort of flirt, underneath the surface flirtatiousness. Even when Tony's being the playboy and he's betting the re- news reporter and stuff like that, like she's still there. She's the personal assistant. You know she's probably as close to him as anybody. She knows him better than anybody. And she, but she works for him, but she also cares for him. And that caring, that genuine affection, even more so than just the romance, it prefer, I guess really it kind of, uh, it, it provides a proper foundation for the romance because there's a real general, you know, real like caring between the two. They really do care for each other as people. And then you want to see the romance sort of come out of that and you have the humor and you have the sort of, uh, the repartee and the witty exchange and the, the way they're going back and forth verbally is really cute. But you're right. It would have been nice to hang on to it a little longer because they sort of reveal that a little too early, that this could actually go somewhere or that if this is going to move in a direction faster than maybe we anticipated. But, so, you know, such a great character. And she's, you know, she'll be on board for the Avenger films. No spoilers. And, uh, you know, just as integral as a role as as Robert Downey or any of the any of the actors that appear over and over again in the MCU, I think she's a she's she was a good bit of casting for this. I really like her in the part. There's a warmth. Gwyneth Paltrow has a has, has a warmth. She really does. Yeah, I think she's great in the role. I like that role. I like when she's escorting the the woman out. She's like, you know, I take out occasionally take out the trash or whatever. Oh, it's so funny. That's a great line. I want to give a shout out too to Sean Taub as Yinsen. I don't I don't think this character is in the comic books, but I liked this character and I was a little disappointed. I didn't quite remember what happened with him. I'm like, does he get away or not? And then it becomes clear. Obviously, he's going to. But then there's the moment where he is running after the soldiers with the gun and they're running away from him. And and at that point, I was like, oh, is he going to like. So they play a little bit with your emotions there because it's like, oh, maybe he'll live. But I'm a little disappointed that he didn't get away and become like kind of Tony's. I don't know weapons weapons consultant or something like that i think that i love the whole cave sequence though because it's really ridiculous it, it all happens incredibly quickly very fast their ca- convoy is attacked the weapons are stolen tony for some reason is being i guess it's his own weapon that's like moving through his body i don't know why it can't be removed only this electromagnetic thing that he builds keeps it away and this guy keeps him alive it's it's quite unbelievable they build a suit together but i like their relationship and I wish that it it was maintained a little bit more, although I understand why it wasn't. Do you have anything to say about Yinsen? Yeah, it's very fast. You have this sort of mentor-protege relationship or, you know, the, the old wise sage and the younger dude that needs to be a little, you know, who's a little less learned, learned, and it, it happens very quick. And the whole bit with, I love the one part about him saying he's going to return to his family because that guy knows he's going to die. His family's dead. He says that. You know, later on, he's like, I'm going to go back and see my family. But he knows his family's dead, which means he knows he's going to die. So that kind of courage, that's a great moment in the film. Like, holy shit, like, this guy was going to sacrifice himself for Tony. He sort of knew it in a way, which is really interesting. I love the the performance. I don't know this guy, the Sean Taub guy, and anything else. I'm sure I've seen him in other things. But really great performance. Really, really cool stuff. And I, I was wondering, Kyle, is that sort of stormtrooper Han chasing the stormtrooper moment? You know, where he's like, ah, chasing yeah. like the packs of terrorists through the hallway. Was that a direct nod to Star Wars? Because it's so silly. 
Yeah, maybe, that's a good point. You maybe know, it is. I it's mean, knowing like who's involved in this, I, it, it it would make sense. I mean, Favreau has a, a love for Star Wars, obviously. Could be, right? There's also the the character I, I wanted to bring up just in passing. I was actually surprised by this, but the character of Rhodes, played by Terrence Howard, I didn't realize that he wasn't in any of the other ones and was replaced, I guess, by Don Cheadle. Yeah. I was reading a little bit about this. Oh, what a disaster. I wonder if he... It's like, oh, man, what did I do? Because I, I know he was offered a pay cut. And, and obviously, I mean, he was supposed to be War Machine. And I assume even I got that. And I assumed that that was going to happen. And, and there's some contractual things there. But I, I couldn't help but feel for him when I was reading that. Because I'm like, oh, man, you just didn't you didn't know. And you made the you made the wrong choice. But do you think he brings any any heft to the role? How do you feel about him? You know, I was wondering. Uh, I didn't know what happened with it. I had yeah. no idea what happened with him. Why I, I know Don Cheadle goes on to play War Machine. I did read that Don Cheadle got a six-picture deal starting with Iron Man 2, but I wasn't sure what happened with Terrence Howard. I have to tell you, people are going to get mad at me for this. I like him better in the part for War Machine than Don Cheadle. I don't think there's anything wrong with Don Cheadle. I like him. I'm a big fan of the Oceans films, for instance. Love him in that. But I think Terrence Howard just has more... I think he just has more of a warmth and I buy the friendship between Terrence Howard and RDJ better. I like it's already established in this film. They have a great chemistry together. You know, they have like they're a little bit, you know, the Rhodes character is a little more dutiful. He's a little bit more by the book, protocol, he's a military guy. Tony's a little bit of a loose cannon. But there's a love underneath the surface that's already established in this two hours. So it's kind of a shame that Terrence Howard wasn't able to sort of reprise the role. You know, shout out to Don Cheadle. I mean, he's kind of the face of, of the War Machine character now over the course of these movies. But yeah, I think if I'm weighing the two, going with Terrence Howard on this, man, I think it would have been good. Fair enough. I, I have no compare, point of comparison yet for it. Not yet. I did want to bring up the special effects, of course. Uh, the late Nate wrote in and said, hey, the Brothers M, I'm thrilled you guys are finally getting to this movie. My question is, in an era where superhero movies and perhaps movies in general have almost entirely devolved into CGI love fests, how nice was it to see a mix of practical and CGI effects in this movie, especially in regards to the Iron Man suit? Further, do you think movies need to return to using that mix of practical effects and CGI, or is the CGI dominant or only movie effects era that we're currently in better? I don't think either Dagan or I would think that that was better. I, I think over and over again, you see that a mix, a mixture of the two, I think slanted towards as much practical as you can possibly do makes the most sense and holds up the best. And I was actually remarking when we were watching it that I was like, this movie holds up pretty well because they're doing some complicated stuff like grafting his face on the machine when it's flying and all that. And it looks good. It, it runs right. And and then obviously just seeing him in the suit with the practical effects, them in the cockpits, like almost cockpit World War II, like zero shots that we're seeing a lot in the movies that we're watching recently. Ironically, I feel like this mixture does is really nice. And I don't know. I was actually surprised. I was like, this movie looks great. What a great place to start your endeavor with probably your cheapest film and your first film because it, it holds up. So surely everything else is going to look great, too. Although I think some of these movies are a little more dynamic in what they what they require than Iron Man. And I will say that one thing, one criticism I have is that they, they love, they got a little too in love in this movie with the, 
with Iron Man flying up towards the screen and fly like that. It's just, there's just a lot of the same shots of him. Yes. And I thought it was a little boring that way. But otherwise, I, I thought it, it looked great. What did you think about the the special effects, both practical and special? Yeah, so much of this movie holds up. I mean, that's a lot to say for a movie that's 13 years old, 13, 14 years old now, right? Over a dozen years old. It's crazy. Like, you don't see that. And I think this is a masterclass in using practical effects when that's going to be the most effective and using CG when that's going to be the most effective and really being thoughtful about what you use where. And you could only really measure that over the test of time. And now that enough time has passed, we could see that in the movie. And it re- a lot of it's really, really good. Like a lot of it really, you stay in the movie and you're not over, you're over, this is the way I find myself. You start, over, you see a sequence coming up. It's going to be a big action sequence. You know you're in for some effects. You start analyzing. And that sort of part of your brain sort of checks things out, susses things out for about five or 10 seconds, and then shuts off because you know it's going to be okay. This movie does that to you over and over again. It's like, all right, I got to check this out. This movie's almost 15 years old. Like, is this what kind of crappy, you know, cheesy shit am I in for? And you never really are. Some of the stuff is a little bit wonky, but nothing that's egregious. And, you know, shout out to Stan Winston and his people for this, for the practical effects, for the metallic and the rubber Iron Man suits and everything. I think they really got it right. You get treated to three different Iron Man suits in this. You get get that sort of makeshift welding mask, Afghani cave B-movie Iron Man suit, you know, with the flamethrowers and everything. And then you get what's the silver suit, which essentially, I guess, is going to go on to be the war machine war machine suit and then you get the hot rod suit the golden red suit the iconic suit i love the iron man suit let's talk about in particular the iron man mask for a second i love the eyes and i love the cut of the mouth sort of that frowning mouth or jowls it's really a perfect mask because it looks badass but it doesn't look sinister or evil and that's a really that's a hard line to toe I, and, the, I, and they nailed it in the movie. They really, really nailed it. Now, you could go back to the 60s. It looks a little more, the suit's a little less cool. But for the modern day Iron Man suit and really harnessing the effectiveness of the look of it, I thought it was really cool. And I feel like they were channeling some of the better anime with, with robotic suits, not necessarily giant robots, but hard suits. Think of like Bubblegum Crisis, where... It looks technologically advanced. Like even if you see this 20 years from now, this is going to look like what it would look like in 2040 or 2044, whenever Bubblegum Crisis took place. Like it looks, you know, streamlined. It doesn't look, it doesn't look cumbersome. It looks like you could really move in it. It looks like you could be athletic in it, but it would still protect you. I think they channeled some of that in this. Like it doesn't feel like old fashioned, even 12, 13, 14 years later. It feels like a proper live action way to handle it which is you know that's all you could say again it holds up i do have to give a shout out just to iron man generally and and the aesthetic i I do love the way the suit looks Mm. and i love that original cave suit i think it's super cool and that they put it all back together and stuff i think is funny all right dig there are a few other things i want to ask you about i I did want to ask because i saw this on my notes what did you think about all the audis in the in the movie that had to be branding right you had the of r8 course, yeah yeah they had yeah, the yeah. R- then they had the the family in the audi r uh suv which i think that was i think the q series like the crossover suvs were just coming out then don't quote me on that 
So yeah, Audi was all over this. It gets pretty agree. I don't, I'm a big car guy. I love car guy. I love cars. I love Audi, but I don't want to feel like, I don't, I don't like the, the, the obvious egregious product placement. I think that I, I liked it in the eighties when I was a kid, but I'm over it now. But one thing in, in Tony's fleet, he has like what? He has like a replica, a replica Shelby Cobra. I'm not sure if that orange car is a McLaren or a Ferrari. I'm not a completely positive. He's got some kind of, some sort of spider in there, but so it wasn't just the Audi, but the are, they did. And of course he's driving around the Rolls. The John Favreau character is driving around the Rolls Royce, but yeah, the Audi was sort of front and center in, in the branding, but you know, you got to have, I mean, look at Bruce Wayne, right? It's very, again, like taking back to like, is this Marvel's version of Bruce Wayne? Bruce Wayne is handled differently though, right? Like, I meant to say this earlier. Tony Stark, sort of this unapologetic playboy, he's betting women, we see it. He's sort of unapologetic about it. He's just doing his thing, having fun. Bruce Wayne, kind of the same thing, right? He's got the model on his arm, different model every night, driving around in the Ferrari. He's going to the black tie functions. Everybody's dressed to the nines. It's just Bruce Wayne is the same. It's just presented a little more elegantly, right? Like, I'm sure Bruce Wayne's not taking the model back and they're going to play, you know, Michigan Rummy or Backgammon. Like, they're just not, you know, they're just presenting it in a more elegant way. You know, he's presenting himself in a more elegant way, this black tie sort of way. But, you know, it reminded me of the whole thing with the cars and the billions and the estate and everything like that. So, you got to have that. I was actually kind of, I thought it was actually kind of funny that this billionaire was worried about, like, these four cars. Like, you can't get, you know, that's probably what, like, a million dollars worth of cars right there, maybe two million. Yeah. You really were that worried about the cars? Like you'll get another you'll get more cars. Like you're fine. Why do you only have four also? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's uh he's showing some restraint. Big a couple more things tied into the movie that I wanted to ask you about. First of all, the ending. Seth Bain wrote in and said, Hey boys, how did you feel about the film's third act? These early MCU films tended to fumble with the last third of the story, usually resulting in an anticlimactic fight where the hero squares off against an evil version of his or herself. Personally, I saw no need for Jeff Bridges to jump into a big Iron Man suit and fight our hero. It doesn't seem fitting for the character or the story. It was as if they didn't know how else to end a superhero movie. Thanks for all the hard work. I actually agree with what Seth's saying here. It reminds me a lot of my critique often of video games, where I love when, and this is becoming more common these days, which is nice, but a game, games are starting to say, like, no more last bosses, right? Like, no more, if you're playing The Last of Us, why is there a last boss? And well, why would there be a last boss? And how would that work? And right. I like that we're getting kind of away from that when necessary. And this reminds me of that where I don't think I needed to see much more of Iron Man doing his thing. And I also and this is why I think the MCU movies might not be that attractive to me, which we'll talk about in a moment, too. But I just don't need the action. I actually like all the in-between stuff. You can just literally put an interstitial that says like Iron Man fights War Machine or whatever for not in this, but Iron Man fights Obadiah for five minutes and then just, okay, cool. And then just, I don't need to see any of that. Let's just go to the next thing. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of this stuff. What did you think about the way the movie ended and specifically the need, even without a villain, to have this this kind of anticlimactic boss fight? I, I, I agree with this. You know, that's a really good point that you make about just the characters, and the sort of in the in between the action moments, the character moments, maybe interrelating or whatever. Like the MCU is built on these characters. You think of really likable, interesting characters: Thor, Star Lord, Peter, 
Tony, of course, Cap, Bruce Banner. Like, these are really interesting characters. These are fascinating characters. Later, Doctor Strange, I would argue, too. Like, not only great characters, but cast expertly by master actors and actresses, right? So you have that. So, and I think they do let moments breathe generally in the MCU. It's not just action, but I don't know. I heard and read a lot of things about the ending ending of this movie, like the second half of this movie, I should say, before I watched it, that it was a little more, wasn't as good as the first half. I got to say, it didn't bother me. I understood I liked seeing Tony battle another robot suit. And the thing that sort of evened the odds was Tony had to fight with this sort of B-class arc reactor where Obadiah had the actual newest, most contemporary arc reactor and Tony had to get the backup from like the ble- from the glass case. So that was kind of an interesting dynamic. And I just think also it just held up. Like, you know, like it just, I think the effects held up. I think it it does get a little hokey with the one-liners in the final battle and stuff like that, but it didn't bother me in the movie, but I love what you said about just relating it to video games and sort of that last boss, that final boss model being sort of trite now. Like you could go a lot of different ways. You know, if video games are art, which they are, and video games are storytelling, which of course they are, you could do whatever you could do in a novel or a TV show or a movie or whatever with the game. So the 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 last boss model is nostalgic. We think back to the NES era, right? That was awesome. Like it was a great payoff when we were kids. But you don't need it every time. And I think I wonder if they thought about that because it's such a thoughtful movie from soup to nuts. But I wonder and I love the ending when we talk about the the ending proper, not just the final battle, but I wonder if they could have done something a little more outside the box here. And made it better because a lot of people do complain that they don't like the last, whatever, 25 minutes of the movie or that's not, it doesn't hold up compared to the first half of the film. So I wonder if they did um, sort of take a flyer on that and maybe they could have, maybe they could have done something better. We have a couple of related questions here that I want to ask about the MCU moving forward and my interest in it and our interest in it. Joseph LaRusso writes in first, he says, hello, gentlemen. My question is more directed at Colin because I know he doesn't watch the MCU films, but I'd love Dagan's opinion on Colin's for it. This movie is so good and there's so much that lays the groundwork for the MCU in it that I can't imagine watching and not feeling compelled to see the next movie. So, Colin, why didn't you feel that way? Was your imagination not sparked at the amazing things that could be done by the end of the film? Thanks. And Dominic Brandt writes in and says, hello, Obadiah Dagan and Mark III Colin. (laughs) Colin, I know you've said this is the only MCU movie you've seen. Does revisiting this movie give you any urge to dive more into the subsequent movies? Or is the task still too daunting? Love the show and keep up the great work. So I wanted to ask these together because this is obviously something I've been long notorious for. And it's it's funny going we were going back 14 years now to this movie as of the time we're recording. Sure. And I feel like. Or thir- I guess would be 13 years, so 13 or 14 years. I feel like you have to remember that when this movie came out, I don't think we understood what this would become. I don't think, as Dagan said earlier, Disney even understood what they were going to do with it or Marvel at the time, not Disney was was going to do with it. And at the time, it just it, it I just it was never drawn to it. And, and in looking through the lineup of movies that it came after, it's like, well, this this isn't as exciting as the other things that I wanted to see. I would have I don't know why I didn't see Iron Man 2 or 3. I, I don't know. But knowing that the Hulk comes next is like a little deflating because I'm like, eh, you know, and the Hulk is kind of boring to me. Now, I, I, a, a, a mentor of mine in the industry, Jeremy Dunham, it's like his favorite thing in the world. I'm not trying to insult the character, but 
it's just kind of a dud character to me. So I think a lot of that just kept me away. But now having watched it with new eyes at 36 years old, I, I'm like, yeah, I'm totally down to, to do this. And that's like we said earlier, I think we'll just throw one of these in every five, six, seven episodes to just keep me going and uh, we'll revisit it then. So how are you feeling? What was your feeling or do you remember your feeling at the time you first saw it and how the MCU kind of adapted and were you drawn to it? Are you drawn now that you've seen Iron Man to go back and, and see things again or fill in holes in your repertoire? Yeah, I really like, I mean, I really like the current modern Disney Marvel MCU. I think it's a really great case in point for creative direction, for show running, for casting. The acting is amazing. I think they're doing a really great job shepherding these this body of movies. And I particularly like, I have to say, I'm I'm almost caught up, but I particularly like Civil War, Ultron, Infinity War, I thought was excellent. And Endgame was really good. I have to say, I finally watched Endgame about three months ago. And I, I just think they're doing a really great job with it. And this is coming from, I have very, very nerdy predilections, right? I don't want to be, I'm not in it because it's big, because it's a blockbuster, because it's going to be a lot of CG explosions. Like think of like Michael Bay Transformers or those shitty Ninja Turtles movies or whatever. Like that's not what I'm in it for. And I think when you have films like this and a giant investment, with Marvel, with Disney, with the MCU and everything like that. I think it's hard to probably appeal to have a universal appeal, right? You have to appeal to the nerdy people, which is a much bigger contingent than it ever was. And you have to appeal to the masses, to the kids, to the parents, bringing their children to the theater, to the average everyday civvy, right? Like you have to appeal to everybody. And I think the MCU does that better than anything I could think of, really, to be honest with you. We saw, we see the, I mean, not everybody thinks this, but we see many of us feeling that Star Wars has its inherent problems. And a lot of other, you know, a lot of other franchises too, where it's like Marvel just seems to be, the MCU just seems to be consistently gold. And I always look forward to it. And I have to say, I really think you're going to like these films, Kyle, especially when you get to the more later stuff from like 2016, 2017 on out, maybe as early as 2015, because I think they generally just keep getting better and better. And I think it's, again, I think it's a masterclass in honoring the original properties, taking a flyer when you need to, to evolve something like this film did. Like this movie, I think Iron Man might deal with Korea or, or, or Vietnam. I'm not sure to take it into a more modern setting and put the make it wartime Afghanistan, for instance, right? So to evolve things where you need to, to sort of honor the original franchises. Honoring the original franchises is very important because you and I always make this, this point, Kyle. Why not? If you're going to do giant transforming robots, right? And it's going to be as different as Transformers was, you know, Michael Bay Transformers is to G1 1983, 1984 Transformers. Why not just make it something else? You're just cashing in on a name after a fashion, right? Mm, and the Marvel, the Marvel entities, the properties, this franchise really does honor the foundations, the comic books, Stan Lee, the original fans, all that kind of stuff, and just evolves it. It makes it better taking it from the page to the medium of film. I think it, I think in many ways, a, a lot of fans would say it, it makes it better. Now, I'm not a traditional comic book fan, much more of an animation guy much more of a manga anime guy from a very early age. 
But even just being a casual comic book, you know, quote unquote, American mainstream comic book guy, I really have to say, I really, really think they're doing a wonderful job with the MCU. And I'm, I'm not sure what the current plans is. Like, again, I'm not that dialed in. Like, I'm not a super fan. But I enjoy just having this casual relationship with it. And I'm always kind of floored by what I see. And are there things that happen along the way that I'm like, oh, right, they could have done that a little better. They could have explored this a little better. Of course, you're going to have that with anything. And we should always have that part of our brains turned on, right? We should always kind of be introspective and thoughtful and analytical, not in a, not in a, in a way to demean the things that we're watching because these are done by brilliant people and lots of hard work, lots of blood, sweat, and tears. But for the, for the most part, I'm really looking forward to having these conversations with you because I really do think you're going to like these. I really do think you're going to like these films, this body of work. As you meet, I'm, I'm excited for you to meet more characters, those relationships to build, conflicts, other bad guys, story arcs. Like you're in for a lot of treats, you know, with this. And I think you are going to like it. I get, I'm kind of tickled that people want you to see it so bad because I think dating back to certainly kind of funny but maybe even ign with you like you've been sort of a holdout you know so i think it's going to be i think it's going to be a lot of fun and people it's just funny that people want to see it too like i get really i I think that's really a funny thing and it's going to be interesting to see what you think and you know the thing with you is you're going to be honest you're not you don't have any stakes you don't have any skin in the game you're not a traditional american quote-unquote comic book guy outside of like you have an affinity for Batman, but other than that, you're a casual dude. Like whatever. Like yeah, you don't have I, any I'm, skin in the game. Yeah. So I have ner- I have deeply nerdy bona fides, but not in this not area. In this space. So I re- yeah. So I respect it because I I understand it. I you know game game respects game. But I feel like and Scorsese's talked about this, and actually it's just bubbled up. I think today as of the time we're recording. Again, oh really? But, but like. We have to under and I want to really stay my sword until I've seen most of it or all of it to really be able to speak on this. But the MCU hasn't been great for the movie industry. It's been great for Disney, but it's it's kind of sucked a lot of the oxygen up and changed what movies are. And there's a lot of criticism to go along with the way this has all gone. And I'm interested to see it from that perspective as well. But I'll be totally open minded. I mean, I and I and I've always said, I mean, I've always said I like the Iron Man movie. So it's not has nothing to do with that. It's just that the longer this went on and the more bullish they became, the more turned off I became to it. And frankly, I'm turned off to Star Wars for the same reason. Yeah. They're like, oh, the Obi-Wan series and the Mandalorian. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I, I just I, I'm sorry. I just don't care. And I feel like there's there's such a thing because like, people are like, well, what if they gave you 15, you know, Mega Man shows or something or movie i'd be like i wouldn't want that 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 sounds horrible (laughs) you know i mean can you even so i i or gi joe is a good example too where everyone's like well i'm like but that there's only one gi joe movie right like it's not and and obviously there's the live action ones but those don't count so dig i did want to say though miguel rosales wrote in about this so i'll give him credit for this because he says hello gentlemen thanks for making my ride home more pleasant every week. What were your thoughts on the iconic I am Iron Man last scene at the end of the movie? To me, I was fascinated with the idea that a superhero didn't need to keep his identity secret and embraced it immediately. Keep doing what you do. Thank you or do best. Thank you, Miguel, for writing in. I did want to just revisit this quickly in light of what we were saying, because one of the things that makes me want to see more is that last scene, because it is very interesting. I don't know if he does that in the comics or whatever, whatever the case might be, but 
there is always this frustrating secrecy at the heart of superheroes. And I understand it fundamentally because they want to keep the ability to blackmail them as minimal as possible. And I, and I, I get that through line, but it's cool for someone to say, like, listen, I don't have a family. I don't have much in the way of whatever, you know, I, I'm rich. I own a business. I have a chick. I have some friends, but you can't really hurt me. So it's not going to it's not going to matter that you know who I am. It's different. And it's it's very interesting. And the way that they tie in, because I think the irony of Iron Man being played by a man or the character, Tony Stark, is a man who doesn't want to make weapons and he just keeps making bigger and worse weapons to not make weapons anymore. It's ironic. So there's a huge struggle there. And to kind of fully humanize it for everyone to see in that world is I think really exciting. And one of the things that I want to see more of, because I wonder like, is this going to be the way it is with all of the heroes? I assume uh, isn't the, the Avengers exist in the real world in this world, right? Where they like have a, a building and stuff. So I, I yep. just don't know how it all works. There's a lot of questions to ask. So it all sets those seeds for me. But um, what did you think about the, about the very ending and, and kind of Iron Man's difference between him and, or the difference between him and other superheroes and, and his lack of secretiveness? I love the ending so much, dude. I mean, first of all, it ends on a dime. Like, it just ends. I love that. It just just feels very outside the box. We finally get treated to Black Sabbath's Iron Man. We knew it was coming. We know the needle drop rights are expensive. I don't think we get vocals, but we get the instrumental, as far as I remember. But you're absolutely right, because all of us, right? We have this history with superheroes, with the comic books, on the page, with TV shows, over the last decades with film now where we're expecting the superheroes to have this whole dynamic, this whole Bruce Wayne, Superman, Clark Kent, Clark Kent, the whole thing of hiding in plain sight, the secret alter ego, the whole thing of like, no one could find out my identity. It's top secret. That whole thing. This just takes it right in the other direction. And if you don't know the comics, especially if you don't know the comics, this ending is like, what? What just happened? That's amazing. It's so it's just fun. It was just a fun way to end it. I love the closing graphics as well with the music playing. And you're right. Now something's happening now. Post credits, we start to get the whole thing with Shield. Well, we have the the guy with Shield who's kind of chasing them down like an IRS agent the entire time. We find out this is like Nick Fury's proxy or whatever. But yeah, and the, you know the whole thing is going to gravitate to being the Avengers, being a group of superheroes, sort of orchestrated by this one dude and that there's others like you we need to we need to do well and i'm sort of putting this whole thing together and will you be a part of it and the dynamic's going to change but it starts right here in the last couple of seconds of this film which is which is so much fun i i love this ending so much yeah i do too and i didn't watch this sequence after the credits because i totally forgot that that's like a thing it's very MCU, fast. So I gotta, I, yeah i gotta go watch that i totally forgot that that's like a thing all right, Dig, I did promise you earlier that I would ask you what I found to be a very thought-provoking question, and I wanted to put it in as our ending. It's from Mark Elfering. Yo, Mark. He wrote in and said, hi, guys. Aside from the original Star Wars, do you think Iron Man is the most financially important film ever made? Whoa. If this didn't work, then billions of dollars would be left on the table by Marvel. All the best. I sat and thought about this, and I'm like, yeah, I think I actually think you're right. I I. I can't think of any other film other than Star Wars that was so relevant to the future. And I'm talking about A New Hope. That was so, irre- that was so relevant to the future of 
I mean, he's absolutely right. It was actually a great point. It's not even a question. It's like, yeah, I do think that I, I do. You, can you think of anything else that would be in that realm? I, I, I can't think of a single thing, not just in the know? Disney camp, but anything like anything. Like, think about like what was more important, like he's saying Iron Man, what begot. I mean, Iron Man, in a way, is responsible for Disney Plus, right? When you think about it. Yeah. Iron Man, I mean, largely. Iron Man was responsible for, for Disney being flush with money to yes. having the cash to buy Lucas to to get the MCU going to unite the other characters that they didn't have control over. Yeah. This is billions and billions and billions and billions of rev- dollars of revenue that they created. And I, I actually it's hard to think of a film that you might even argue that Iron Man is more important. It's crazy to think about. It's kind of it's kind of wild. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point, man. And you know, it's really, really a daunting thing at the center of that. These are all different films, different stories, helmed by different directors. You know who the through line is? RDJ. It's fucking RDJ, dude. How that? He's the mainstay. He's the consist. He's the consistent factor through all these films. He's the through line. He's the one dude, right? Like that's pretty intense to think about like one carrot one guy one human being be that important being that instrumental to a franchise you know one thing i could think of that's not less in a franchise way but more of a power sort of a i don't know what the the best way to describe it is but sort of in a way of like harnessing enough power to do the next thing and and getting like getting leave to basically do whatever you want is Pixar with Toy Story. You know, mm, like that's sure. a very, that was their anchor. You know, that gave them the power to go on and pretty much do whatever they wanted to do to the tune of not only the, the Toy Story sequels, but, and, you know, being bedfellows with Disney for distribution and all that kind of stuff was a big part of that. But just in being, becoming a household name, right? That's Toy Story, right? So that's another right. big thing. And I would argue too, like what you said, along the lines of what you said, it probably was the single thing that encouraged Disney to not only buy Marvel, but later invest in Star Wars slash Lucasfilm, Henson, later on with Fox. Now, you had mentioned this earlier, like a lot of people take exception to that. Like Disney being at the forefront of all of these previously disparate creative entities now they're the they they hold all of the keys right they have they have all the they have all of these properties under their one banner which is which is really uh i think it troubles some people i think it troubles some people but it's not it troubles me it troubles does it me, trouble you i was gonna I ask you how you felt consolidation about is like the enemy of creativity not i i don't i don't think it's good i mean i'm not gonna sit here and act like it's a big deal or whatever but Scorsese's right that the MCUization, the Disneyization of film is not not been good for film. It's been good for money. That's been good for toys and merch. You know, if that's what you're into, but it's not been merchandising. I would argue that in some way it's it's kind of a dichotomy because in some way, as we were saying, this is the most creative you can possibly imagine. People fusing all these properties together in a coherent way. Sure, it's certainly a feat of marketing. It's certainly a feat of writing and all of that, but it's also like a it's crudely capitalistic and that's fine but i don't know i wouldn't i don't i don't begrudge anyone for saying like this kind of sucks like what what because it it, it, cr- it requires all that creativity but the other side of the dichotomy is like it's actually devoid of creativity if if you 
you're not these aren't new ideas. These characters all exist. Stan right. Lee and a bunch of other people created all this shit. Like, it's it, it, so it is it is interesting to think about and like how they just have to delve deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the Marvel ethos to find things to draw from because they don't have new ideas. And I think these things kind of cut both ways. So you kind of get what you ask for. And I, I don't begrudge people that, but it comes at a cost. The new sure. ideas thing, I, d- I definitely get. I'm thinking while you're talking, and I don't know that I've thought about this that much. I'm not opposed to Disney. I'm not necessarily a Disney super fan, but I've never really been opposed to Disney. I, I, I enjoy Disney. I've enjoyed them through the years, what they've done from animated features to their ac- acquisitions, whatever. It doesn't really bother me. I, I draw it up to like Netflix. Like, what's the difference? Like Netflix is doing what Disney does. They're they're giving different creators and different creative teams the ability to do different things. But they're kind of, under Disney you're sort of beholden. Well, I guess Netflix too. I was going to say you're sort of beholden to that one bean counter. You're you're sort of beholden to to that bean counter of that under that umbrella, right? But the Disney thing I like, but I do understand what you're saying with doing new things. That's where Netflix is different. They'll, for instance, they'll do, they'll give Stan Sakai the right to go do Usagi Yojimbo animated series, but they'll also do something brand new like Stranger Things, right? Netflix is not, certainly not guilty of just rehashing. They'll do retro properties, but they'll also do brand new stuff. Where Disney really is kind of cashing in, even the Mandalorian, which is new, is cashing in on the Star Wars name. Or at least you can make that argument. You may disagree with that statement. But you know what I mean? So that is where it's different. That is where Disney is a little different than, like, let's say, a Netflix or a Google or an Apple TV or something like that. Where, you know, they're sort of buying known entities. Like, Disney owns the Simpsons now. That's crazy to think about you know that's the last property you would have thought of 20 years ago to be under disney's umbrella maybe south park would have been the last one simpsons would have been the second to last one so it is interesting it's an interesting conversation i like that there's resources to do things but maybe things should be done more thoughtfully and original i do wonder like that is a great point like i do wonder where original ip comes into play i have this problem with nintendo it's like, do something new. Like, I, Mario and Zelda are awesome. I love Mario, love Zelda, love Metroid, love all the properties that you ignore. I'm not a big Smash Brothers guy, but I know people like that a lot. Mario Kart, whatever. But do just do something new. Like, whatever, you know, add something to your itinerary. Add something to that. Add something to the fold. So I could go to the party store and get Mario merchandise and X merchandise. You know, Zelda merchandise. And this new thing, like... I know they've done like, I don't know. Um, Pikmin was probably the new. I, I was gonna say Pikmin, Pikmin and Animal Crossing are like the newest things, and those are both twenty years old. I mean, yeah, right. And the um the and, other and thing. Splatoon. They Splatoon. 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 But that was that's not even a, that wasn't even a native. Wasn't that a Wii U game first? Yes. Like yeah. So like they haven't even done that this generation. I agree no. with you there. And Sony is really good about that. Although they are getting worse at that too. So Wait, did they do Splatoon two for Switch? No, they. I'm saying the Spl- Splatoon as a series didn't begin on Switch, so no, I'm saying no, it's no. not. Didn't begin on. No, definitely. You know, Pikmin not. was kind of tied in with GameCube, etc. So do something I, new. I, it's not hard. Yeah, Invest in new stuff. People, there is really a flop sweat for that. 
that's a that's been a perpetual thing for a couple of decades now. I re- I really would like to see that. It's a good point. Dig do you, is I'm I'm satiated. Are is there anything else you are? Uh, no, to I'm talk excited. About? You know, again, not being like Marvel super fan guy, but liking certainly liking the things from my perspective. Like I'm really excited for you to see this stuff and that comes from you know again like not i'm not coming from on high with like all the marvel soup original uh, old head like og marvel super fans but that being said i do enjoy the stuff i do enjoy the mcu and i'm excited i think you're gonna like them i kind of see you going in like a little like with your arms folded a little begrudgingly so i think that's gonna be i think that's gonna be fun when if you come out liking you know, this movie or that movie, or you come out liking a character like Dr. Strange or the way they portray Thor or something like that. I'm going to, I, I I think I'm excited for this. I think you're going to like Guardians Thor. of the Galaxy too, actually. Thor is going to be a heavy lift for me. You think? But we'll see. We'll see. It's good I, stuff. It's the acting, man. It's the performances. They're good. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I am going to be open-minded to it and uh, we'll go from there. So, uh yeah that was a fun conversation we hope you all enjoyed it out there dig let's wrap up as we always do with a dad joke. okay i have a heading called 52 corny dad jokes i feel like you don't need the word corny in there they're dad jokes right so let me just a little redundant a little redundant let me just pull one up here I i this list was actually interesting to me because it's hard to find a list of almost 60 dad jokes and i don't see any that i've actually used yet so that's really that's kind of a good thing all right kyle let me see what do we got here? <laughs> Kyle, what do you get when you overcoddle a cow? I don't know. Spoiled milk. <laughs> it's all bad. That's pretty good. I'm reading yeah, it's all bad, it's 56 bad. of these, so get ready. Cool. Good. I You're mean, whatever, whatever makes you happy. All right. Well, we, we thank all of you out there for your love, kindness and support of our show and all things Last Stand Media. Remember to support us on Patreon if you can. Patreon.com slash Last Stand Media. Leave us nice reviews on iTunes and other podcast services. Come join us on YouTube. The video. This is on video. This is one of the uh, our podcast. Knockback has a mostly audio audience. But if you like the video component of it, come join us. And um, yeah, that's basically it. Dig. I will see you soon. Yes. We'll, again, be back to the MCU soon. But I think into some TV shows and video games next. And um, yeah, that's it. We'll see you next time. Till then. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Jordan Mittman, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Avaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Hallen Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holt. 
Gilbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeffrey Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter86, Michael J. Sutherland, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travelus Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubber, Ray Lagia, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Dan Parson, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Kyle Thomas, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinnison, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Someone like, uh, <laughs> someone just walked in. Somebody just walked in. I don't know who it was. I missed it. That, I missed it too. They'll be in the video. Yeah. That, um, 